really in some ways writing was what saved me because I kept writing all of this out. I kept writing the strangeness out. And there's a, that's a terrific place to come from as a writer when you're trying to develop a character and see them from inside out. Instead of just drawing upon things that you know all the time, you have to push yourself outside of your boundaries, outside of where you are comfortable and the way that you see things. Coming here and transplanting myself here in that way was incredibly useful for me as a writer. But for me as a person, I found it really difficult. Cassandra Austin is an Australian writer and author of two novels who lives in Los Angeles. Our conversation explores how the profound sense of alienation that Cassandra experienced upon moving from the land with which she closely identifies has shaped her writing and helped her to develop her craft, even while she struggled personally. Cassandra also talks about why she considers herself an Australian writer and how she discovered that writing time is more important to her than writing space. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real. Cassandra, thanks so much for coming in to chat with me today. It's really great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've recently talked to a few writers about their creative process, and I found the difference in how they approach their work to be fascinating. Can you tell us about your creative process? How do you work? Well, I work from home now, but I did have the luxury for one year of having an office. And that, I suppose, as a writer, you dream of a space that can be just yours, where you can curate everything that goes into it. The pictures on the walls, the books on the bookshelves, the furnishings, the exact right desk that you imagine is going to help you. And it was true. It was a lovely experience. And I knew that every time I set off into that space, it was for writing. I didn't have the internet connected there. I didn't have to do washing. I took a meal. It was wonderful. But at the same time, a writing space is not the same as writing time. And I think what I've primarily learned as as a writer who's becoming more efficient is to guard my time much more wisely than space. So I can work in a crowded cafe if I need to. I can work at the library. In fact, when I wrote my first novel, I really did it in the interstitches between answering the phone for 17 different companies. So I I know that what I really need to do as a writer is, is guard the writing time that I've set for myself. And at the moment, that tends to be morning time. I'm a morning person. I get the kids off to school, I walk home, and then I sit down and I write. And if I get two hours straight that way, that tends to be good writing, writing that I can use and just improve upon. If I start my writing in the afternoon, I often find I'm already thinking of school pickups, I'm already thinking of dinner, maybe there's a load of washing that needs to be done, etc., etc. And I tend to be editing or I tend to be more sloppy in my writing so my process is essentially a morning process and one where I don't think too much about it Mm -hmm. I'll read a little bit over what I've done the day before just to get into the voice and into the flow 
but otherwise it's it's diving straight in it tends to be the best way for me right when you start a project what do you do do you do do an outline do you kind of work more freeform how does it how does it come together am i a pantser or a plotter is what they call it. Um, what I, did you say? A pants? A pantser, meaning you fly by the seat of your pants. Okay. So are you a pantser or are you a plotter? Okay. For my first novel, actually for both the three novels now that I've written, two of which are published, one which I'm still in the middle of, I start with an image or an idea or a dilemma, I guess. So for my first novel, I had a dream that kept coming to me and it was that a husband was asking his wife to give up her best friend. Mm. And I later f- realized that her best friend was a dragon. And that was the dilemma there. Was the dragon real or was the dragon not? So I start with that and then I try and think about the ending. And if I have those two things, an initial point from which to jump off and that excites me, mm-hmm. and then somewhere I'm writing to... I can tend to just start straight away. I don't have to plot. But with my second novel, I got lost when I did it that way, Mm. in part because I showed it to people too quickly and I gave the writing over to, to comments, to ideas that weren't mine, and then I tried to accommodate them and I got lost. So for the third novel... I heavily plotted for the first time Mm. and far from doing what I thought that was going to do, which was take the joy out of it in some ways, because there, there is a distinct pleasure in surprising yourself on the page, not knowing entirely where you're going to go. But, and, but far from ruining that process, in fact, it, it streamlined it because Mm. I, I still had all the freedoms that I wanted. I didn't have to follow the plot if I don't want to, but when I got lost, there was something that I was driving towards mm-hmm. that I didn't have to think about. And that was enormously relieving. So I think I can say I will be a plotter from now on. <laughs> <laughs> a plotter with a bit of uh, flying by the seat of your pants. That's right. <laughs> well, I think everybody does that, really. That's right. That's life. <laughs> so you talked about the idea for the first book coming to you in a dream. Where do you usually get your ideas? What inspires you? That's such a, you know, a tricky question for me. It's not as though I I know when I trip over an idea, whether it's in a book or, or whether I overhear some conversation, because those sorts of things do happen. I, you're in pu- on public transport or someone says something that makes you spark in some way or another way, gets your passion going. I can't say that I've I've had moments like that where I've suddenly had a revelation, this is what I want to do. It's more it feels like a wellspring that's coming from inside me, something that I have to explore or something that I have to say. So it's it's more indefinable for me. I said a dream, I'm not sure that's actually accurate. I think that's a a retrospective way of understanding mm. something that kept pressing at me, the idea of being asked to sacrifice something. My second novel is literally about sacrifice, human sacrifice. And my third novel, which is about mothers and daughters, is also exploring that. And I think that that's often common for writers, that there's a theme that runs through your work, whether it's about belief or whether it's about friendship or whatever it is. There are aspects of something that's 
that you're mining very deep within your own psyche in one way or another way that comes out and it's fascinating yeah that is interesting how you can see that through line in your books even though they have very different topics and locations and everything it's definitely retrospectively yeah it's not something that you (laughs) that you can see when you're starting out and and I could be wrong I mean you could look at the novels that I've written and say well actually they're not about sacrifice they're about belief Mm. what do you believe in the face of someone else believing something different how Mm. do you uh, compromise around that when you're living with someone so like all of these things understanding one's own work and where it's coming from for me is very retrospective right and I am more of a pantser clearly clearly (laughs) (laughs) and you won't be thinking when you start your next book uh okay sacrifice belief what's it going to (laughs) be no it never starts starts with an image or some central conflict for me yeah well let's talk about your beginnings as a writer how did you get started I think I'd always known that I wanted to write. I was very much the child who was sitting with their nose in a book while everyone else was doing something else. And often my parents had their hands in their air calling my name. When will you stop reading? Come and do what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I say that to my daughter all the time. Right. (laughs) So I was that child. And... Then I started telling stories to my cousins. They've reminded me of this and I'd forgotten about this, that I would gather them all on the bed and tell them scary stories. Um, And then somewhere in high school, I think it was, when I started to read the real heavyweights, Tolstoy, John Fowles, George Eliot, and I really saw what a novel could be and do because I understood how they were affecting me Mm. that really planted the seed that I wanted to do this one day I didn't give myself permission to really think about doing that for many many years it wasn't until I moved to this country and actually was unable to work here legally that my then to be husband Adam said to me well you've said that you want to write so why don't you do that Mm -hmm. And that was when, really when I dove in and, and that was such a liberation for me because I hadn't taken any writing classes. I'd done, I'd done an English literature course at university but never with the idea in the back of my mind still that I would use it one day in writing. So it was a whole playground to me, a real fairground to suddenly sit down and think, well, what, do, what, it, what is it that I want to write? And all of a sudden I had 40 short stories. So I think I'd stored a lot of what I wanted to say or how I felt about the world and it poured out. Hmm. And that's really where it began. So that invitation was very welcome to it you. Was. <laughs> it was. I, I knew that I wanted to make a transition. I, in my previous incarnation, had worked as a criminologist around human rights for the homeless. And I knew that I wanted to come out of that field. It was a very taxing field. It was incredibly rewarding. And I'm terribly grateful for all the work and time that I spent in that area. But I'd already begun a transition out via documentary filmmaking. I was working on sets and I was writing them and and really enjoying that process. But documentary film, like all film, is really work in some ways by committee. 
Mm. Everyone depends on everybody else. You can't do it by yourself. And that that's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. And you probably have to be more of an extrovert than I am. Mm. I'm, I'm a determined introvert. So writing was the next logical step. Yeah, <laughs> you can do that all by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, that you have a, a degree in a master's degree in, in criminology. So what were you interested in when you pursued this this field? And does this interest manifest itself in some way in your writing? Mm, that's a good question. I think I was interested in notions of social justice. I was raised a Catholic. I was brought up in a family that held and upheld those principles that we are equal and that people are born into unequal circumstances and that we have responsibilities towards one another individually and as a community. And I, I, I agreed with that and it seemed to me that going into law in some ways in looking at laws that govern the way people can use public space in particular which is something that I saw um, poor people having less of was something that maybe I could do maybe I could make a difference in that area so I was very drawn to um the idea that I could change the world in some way, as I think we all are when we're that young, teenage mm-hmm. years and, and in your 20s. And then after working in that field for so long and I worked at a federal level and I was involved in Australia's fight to uh, actually to get the United States to sign international treaties around a legal right to housing, I was also involved in training workers at a state level and then I worked directly with homeless people as an advocate to make sure that they had shelter for the night. But after eight years of that, what I saw was a lot of repetition. I I saw that I wasn't going to solve the problem of homelessness, which sounds (laughs) terribly grandiose even to be talking about it as though I ever thought that I could, but in some way I did. In some way I believed that we could make programs that would help young people who needed to leave their families and and needed housing, that we could help the people who'd come out of institutions and needed more community and social support. But as I was saying, after eight years, I was quite burned out. Mm -hmm. I no longer believed the same things and I started to think well really if I'm going to change the way community works I need to do it more directly and that's why I started to think of film Mm -hmm. and I think then you know writing became then something that I could actually do rather than having to work with a whole lot of other people on film but I think also in the process of course I aged and I realized that I wasn't going to save the world that I wasn't going to be able to help these populations of people and that maybe the help that I thought I was giving them wasn't the help that they wanted anyway. Mm. So a lot of things changed in the process. Does the social justice element still ring throughout my work? Probably. I don't write directly from that experience. I think in some ways it's still too close, even though now it's been, I don't know, 17 years something close to that since Mm -hmm. I've been working in that field and some of the stories I have I think probably are quite extraordinary 
tales of people's lives and the ways that they managed. But I don't know that I feel like they're mine to tell and Mm. I haven't quite transmuted them into characters, I don't think. But then, look, I'm sure other people would say, well, of course you have. You've got this fellow Charlie who's functionally homeless wandering through your second novel. Mm. So who knows? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not at at a conscious level anyway. No. So you've been living in Los Angeles for the most part of 20 years, although you regularly spend time in Melbourne. Could you talk a little bit about the experience of settling in a country other than the one in which you were raised? I found it very difficult to settle here, in part because I'm quite smitten with Australia and with Melbourne in particular, And I didn't really want to be transplanted anywhere else. And I think, again, when when I think about it now, um, I actually just reading or have finished reading a book by Lauren Slater, who's an American psychologist. And she's written a memoir called Lying about, uh, in partly, about her having epilepsy and that she had her corpus callosum, which is the... um, the cord, I guess, that runs between the two hemispheres in mm-hmm. our brain, she had that cut in order to help her epilepsy. And I think in some way that's actually a very fine analogy for how I felt. Um, certainly I was then moving between two hemispheres, mm-hmm. the southern and the northern. But also as a consequence of having those hemispheres cut, there's a lot of um, lack of communication that goes on between the two parts of the brain. Mm. And I really felt as though I had to grow a new heart and it was a very different sort of heart to the heart that I'd had in Australia. Lauren talks about when she had the corpus callosum cut, if she shuts one eye, she can no longer say the words for things. She can't name things anymore. She knows what they are and she can see them, but she can't name them. Mm. It's the different parts of the brain get disconnected the Wernicke's area I think it is and I think in some ways that's how I felt that even though everything looked the same the food the people the clothes the streets things were not the same language didn't have the same meaning over here when we use the same words we weren't actually referring to the same thing Mm -hmm. now I know that that you know perception is this great philosophical question when I look at the color blue and you look at the color blue do we actually see the same colour? So I'm not really talking about it in that sort of epistemological sense, but it, it profoundly affected the way that I understood myself. I was very comfortable in Australia. I had a career. I had a knowledge base. People saw me quite well as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. When I came here, no one had any sense of me. I didn't come with history that people could see my habits, my ways of speaking, my sense of humour, what I looked for that gave me comfort. I didn't know where to find these things and I didn't particularly know how to communicate it to other people very well, Mm. which sounds terrible for a writer, doesn't it? But I think really in some ways writing was what saved me because I kept writing all of this out. I kept writing the strangeness out. And there's a, that's a terrific place to come from as a writer when you're trying to develop a character and see them from inside out. Instead of just drawing upon things that you know all the time, you have to push yourself outside of your boundaries 
outside of where you are comfortable and the way that you see things if you're going to write a character who's has a much more violent temperament than you do or is much more patient than you are Mm -hmm. or is suffering something that you have never suffered so coming here and transplanting myself here in that way was incredibly useful for me as a writer but for me as a person I found it really difficult right and now what about when you are in Australia I mean you go pretty often so you're constantly touching in but do you do you have Im- that immediate comfort there that you had before or have you become a bit of a stranger <laughs> in Australia for a very long time it was immediate comfort it was it was putting the fingers back into the glove I know this this fits well I'm I don't have to second guess myself here um there's a book by Sarah Turnbull called Almost French which I read about five years into moving here and she is an Australian who went to live in France and she had exactly the same experience that I did and she was locking herself in the bathroom after dinner parties exactly the way that I did and saying to her partner everybody hates me which is exactly what I did (laughs) and when I read that when I read that on the page and I realized that this probably had very little to do with me then if she could have the same experience in a completely different culture and was in fact a much more transpersonal thing I was released all of a sudden from all the expectations that I had from from that I suppose very self-centered way of thinking that this was about me Mm -hmm. and what I was failing to do failing to understand and I saw that it, it, it didn't have to be that way it could be more of an adventure and that I could see this as a challenge instead of as a as a difficulty mm-hmm. um, maybe there's not much difference between those words but one's a more positive spin yep so that altered my relationship with Australia mm. of course so instead of seeing it as the refuge that I kept going back to then it it became more familiar more known I saw it as smaller it couldn't offer me the same opportunities. So definitely that was a it was an interesting period then when I went in out of um, great love and, and passionate defence always of Australia first to seeing it with slightly more jaundiced eyes, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, obviously has been a much happier thing for me since that most of my year is spent here. My children are definitely American. My husband's American. And I found myself much happier to be here once I stopped trying to fight it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Once you uh, felt a little bit less close to Australia maybe yeah it was a it was a process that happened in both directions at once I was no longer trying to um stave off some sort of unhappiness here I think and and wanting all the time to reshape my experiences here closer to the ones I already knew right once I let go of all of that then then it's been lovely yeah, I mean, I'm. I've seen this first, uh, you know, close up with my mother as well. We, she was from France, and we didn't go back often. But I remember we went back when I was uh, in college, and I saw her feel like a stranger there, and it really changed her relationship with the United States. And she became a citizen, and suddenly she was American. I mean, you know, on the outside, she was obviously still very French. She had her yeah. accent and everything, but inside she she definitely felt differently. So. It's a really, it's interesting. I think it's like moving a plant, you know, from one 
part of the garden to another part and the plant's been very used to the amount of sun and shade and water and whatever its neighbors are and then you put it somewhere else and for a while it doesn't thrive it it really needs to take a while to find its own place and its own feet in the new place and I I don't have any regrets about that it's been a really interesting and a good process for me I know other people have come over here arms wide open ready to grab it all that just wasn't my experience Mm -hmm. and so how has the experience of really living in these two cultures these two hemispheres as you say how has it affected your writing would you say I'm much more open than I was, I think, even though I'm a fairly broad-minded person, I, I don't tend to judge what other people are doing or how they live their lives. But at the same time, experience gives you things that are unexpected, that you have to cope with, that you have to um, manage. And that broadens your writing it it can't not it just shows you the capacity of the human animal the spirit the heart the things we resist and that all is fantastic grist for the mill when you're writing a character you have so much more to draw on than if you stay within an environment that's supportive and familiar to you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's it's been invaluable really I think it's it's, it's been great for me personally and for my writing. It's, it's a really good thing. And in fact, you know, I'd like to go and live somewhere else now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where, where are you wanting to go? I'd love to go to Greece or Italy. Oh, yeah. Really well, those like, are always lovely. <laughs> and always aesthetically uh, just so different. I'd really like to try that. Yeah. It would be really interesting. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so despite living in the United States for two decades almost, uh, you publish in Australia and your novels are set there. Could you talk a little bit about that? Hmm. I consider myself an Australian author and that that means something to me beyond the fact that I was born there there's something I think that is given to you in the roots um, and the ancestry from where you come and that's soaked into me I, I don't think that's ever going to come out I think my love of the land is something that's really endemic to who I am and so it's a source of pride for me to publish in Australia and to consider myself an Australian author that doesn't mean that I don't want to have my books here and certainly actually the fourth novel I'm looking at is going to be set here mm. So there's that change. But I still, there's something, it's, it's, it's like a fierce pride, I guess. I want to be known as an Australian author. I'd like to be part of the Australian canon, should that ever happen. Mm. It's just, it's how I see myself. It's, it's an important part of how I see myself. Right, right. Interesting. Your most recent novel, all Fall Down was published earlier this year, and I read that it's been called Australian Gothic. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of us who aren't familiar with this term, what does it mean? And in your mind, does it accurately describe your writing? It certainly describes that novel. I, it's an interesting thing that there seems to be the rise of horror and gothic in the film world and the writing world at the moment. And it's an interesting term, gothic. We mostly 
probably are thinking about castles and chains and women who are losing their minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the modern Gothic, the way that I like to think about it is that if, if you have a horror novel, it's almost like a siren that's constantly wailing and you can't really do much else than try and stand still and maybe put your hands over your ears and wait for it to go. To me, mm. that's what horror is. It's immediate, it's acute, and it's and it's really a sensory overload. Mm. Whereas to me, gothic, quite simply, is something that haunts you. Mm. So it's a quieter background noise. It might be the neighbor next door who's got the hammer. Right. And they're just hammering all day. And sometimes you hear it and sometimes you don't. Mm. But at the end of the day, you might have a headache mm-hmm. from it. <laughs> and I think in a sense that's what gothic is. It's just it's a haunting of you by whatever it is that haunts you. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, that's often the interior of Australia for um, the non-First Nations of Australia. That's the, the, the desert, the bush, the uninhabitable areas of our enormous landmass where there's a lot of spiritual activity where there's a lot of inhospitability whether that's animals plants uh, or just the bare landscape Mm. um, that can't be farmed that isn't going to give you water that isn't going to give you resources to survive And it plays a great role in the mythology of Australia. It's in a lot of our books. It's in a lot of our sort of iconic images, I think, when people think of Australia as as well as the beaches. They're thinking of Uluru. They're thinking of the outback, Mm -hmm. this mythical outback that everyone refers to. And, of course, it's quite a literal place. Mm -hmm. But for most Australians, 80% of whom live on the coasts, Mm It's not even something that they've seen. So it, it really is much more a mythical hmm. element of what it is to be Australian. than It's it an is. idea. Yes, it's mm-hmm. an idea. And it's drawn upon a lot by a lot of my favourite Australian authors, Kenneth Cook's Wake and Fright or Lindsay, uh, sorry, Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's more of a bush setting. There's a lot of literature in Australia that draws upon that gothic element and I wanted to be a part of that and to do that as well to explore what my version of that might be and that's why this 13 year old girl is sent out there and she encounters all sorts of strange people and and strange habits out there. So at the very beginning of talking about that you you talked about non-first nations? That's right that white people in Australia yes those of us who are not indigenous to the land okay yeah so what we would call native americans right here in in the united states in australia now the the term is first nations mm-hmm. right yeah. i know that you are interested in horror and that your first novel seeing george you told us a little bit about that with the dragon included uh, fantastical aspects so how would you describe the genres <laughs> that in which you write uh, this is why i'm a publisher's nightmare Um, (laughs) I don't tend to write in one area now that's something that's a 
big statement in today's publishing world. Publishers and readers, to be fair, like a brand. And I like the same thing. When I walk into a bookstore, I like to know what I want today is a romance, what I'd like today is science fiction, what I'd like is some literary fiction. So I tend to write a literary novel using genre tropes. And that can be tricky. Um, Certainly with my first novel, Seeing George, because it had the fantastical elements, it was reviewed in fantastic fiction and various other um, fantasy magazines. And although the reviews were good, there was definitely some confusion about why the dragon was potentially more psychological than literal. Mm. And by the same token, in the literary fiction reviews, there were questions about why why couldn't I just make the dragon a man instead of making it a dragon? Mm. So I think that there are it's it's very difficult to be moving between genres, and that tends to be what I'm doing. Again, with the second novel, it's literary fiction, but it's it's um, exploring a literal idea of human sacrifice. I think literary fiction is probably the best way to categorize mm-hmm. my work. But it, <laughs> you have to have a broad mind, an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> so you've read uh, two chapters of the novel on which you are currently working at my backyard salon. Would you mind talking a bit about the genesis of that project and what you're discovering in the writing? That's been it's been my most enjoyable project. I have to say, I really loved writing it I had enormous fun and glee I would say when I was writing it and it's it's about mothers and daughters and it's set in 1969 small town Australia and it's the least fantastical in some ways of anything that I've ever written but when I finished the first draft the pleasure that I felt and the relief that I felt made me pause and and realize how much of myself I'd invested in this novel how much of it is really was really me writing out some of the things that I didn't say or didn't allow myself to express about motherhood about being a daughter about the traditional roles that women play in society and subverting a lot of those or or really writing to the dark side of those. So it's been it was fascinating to see how freed I felt after I had finished it as though I had written things out of myself and onto the page. Where are you at with that uh, that novel now? I finished essentially the first draft and the first my first edit and so now I'll be sending it off actually next Monday. Very exciting. <laughs> so, yeah. What's your process in terms of, I know you have your your fourth novel in mind because you told us it's set here in the United (laughs) States. Are you going to start working on that one now or do you really wait till you cap off the the last one? No, I would normally generally start on the fourth novel, but actually I've got quite a few projects that I'd like to get underway. The second novel took me eight years to write and in part that was because I got married, shifted country and had two children but it was also because I kept working on other projects as well but I I haven't finished any of those as short stories. There's, There's quite a few things that I'd like to be tying up and putting in different places so I'll probably in the first instance see how many of those I can also push out into 
the published world rather than start on the fourth novel immediately just because I think that the turnaround time on the edit that the publisher might want to do is probably going to be pretty quick I don't think it's going to be Mm, take them months Yeah, yeah that's right that's right Well, in closing, I'd love to have you tell us about what you've been reading or what you are reading lately that's had an impact on you and your writing. Well, I mentioned before Lauren Slater, a psychologist. I had read her many years ago, two or three of her books, Prozac and Welcome to My Country. I hadn't read her memoir, Lying, and I hadn't read um, Notes of a Reluctant Mother, and she's got one or two others. And so I just decided to do a bit of a delve back into her work again. I particularly love her language. She has an extraordinary language. But also her first book, Welcome to My Country, where she's actually writing about some of her patients or clients from when she was only just starting out, so she was in her 20s. That was fascinating to me and to revisit that, to go back to that, in a sense, to be having a look at myself, I suppose, in a way when I was that same age and I was doing not psychological work in a sense, but closer to the social work that I was doing, to look at all the hopes that you have when you are that age and how much work you actually are able to accomplish. Uh, It was really interesting to revisit that. And when she was talking about some of these people, she does it with such compassion and Mm. such humanity. And I was reading about one uh, instance in particular and I just burst into tears. And it's a long time since I've read something that did that to me, that where I just sobbed. And so that was, again, that was in a strange way, it was a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be moved so deeply so thoroughly so i'm enjoying her books and i can't recommend them enough oh fantastic (laughs) all right thank you so much cassandra thanks for coming to talk with me today pleasure that's it for today's episode thank you cassandra for speaking with me about your creative process and how you've developed your craft as a writer If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about the Real podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at Real the Podcast. Reach us at Real the Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.